Hi, this is Mark Verheiden, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. This is Gray, and I'm here with TV and feature writer-producer Mark Verheiden. How are you doing, Mark? I'm excellent. Sunny what? day in Los Angeles. Oh, it's it's really humid here in Toronto, um, but uh, that's okay. Lovely <laughs> town, by the way. Yeah, well, well, actually, uh, Hemlock Grove is is shot in the Toronto area, so I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the weather here. Yep, very familiar. Yeah, good and bad. <laughs> yeah, and so we will talk a lot about Hemlock Grove today, but that'll be in the last half of the interview. First of all, and I shared with you this with you before, I'm a big fan of your work. I mean, from Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Heroes, Falling Skies, wow. I mean, you you have contributed a lot to genre television, and uh, and I really appreciate your work. I'd love to talk about it. Great, yeah. It's, it's, I've had a... I've been very fortunate over the years and that I've been able to work on some, some really exciting shows that uh, sort of speak to me and are in my world. And, um, you know, it's, it's been interesting because, um, I grew up as a science fiction fan and a comic book fan and uh, attended all the conventions. I was your classic sort of, you know, fan. Uh-huh. And, um, and back when I was doing that years ago, um, it wasn't looked upon, looked upon with quite as much, uh, sort of, there was no nerd celebrity back then. Um, and it's, it's been kind of, uh, fun to see that what's, what I think has happened is all the passions and all the things that excited me when I was, uh, growing up. And then when I first moved to, to Los Angeles to break into the business, sort of the business caught up to that. And mm. so shows that mirrored what, what interested me when I was a kid, which was comics and science fiction and, and film and television, um, suddenly that went from sort of a drought to uh, there were many more opportunities to work in that that world. And so uh, I guess the, the two sort of met. Very cool. And and you started out with in, in writing for comics, didn't you? Yeah, my, my first work was um, uh, I did a lot of work for Dark Horse Comics right when they started. I uh, I created a character called The American, which was my very first book, mm-hmm. uh, which came out back in the 80s. Um, and that led to working with Dark Horse on um, uh, spinoffs of the Aliens movie and Predator uh, movies, both of which were um, incredibly successful. That was a, a amazing time to be in comics because um, sales were skyrocketing, going through the roof, and you could... Uh, and people were just really into to what we were doing. And mm. um, and beyond that, the comics back then, when I worked on Aliens and Predator, I was very spoiled because um, I never did rewrites or had notes. Um, wow. Fox was incredibly hands-off on Aliens and Predator, the early ones. And uh, so those were sort of undistilled, me and the guys at Dark Horse, who were all friends from our college days. We grew up together in Portland, Oregon. Um, just having fun and doing the best books we could do. It was a great introduction to the writing world. Um, uh, you could see sort of how good it can be. Sometimes it's not that good, but um, <laughs> at that point, that was really a fun a fun entree into uh, professional writing. Wow. Well, I, I actually worked on a documentary series um, on the genres and influence of, of comic books. It was a 10-part series, and it was just fascinating to go through... Um, 
I mean, there there are a lot of really really exciting times in comics, and that was certainly one of them. It was really a great a great moment. It was sad to see when it sort of faded a bit. Um, obviously, now comics are comics movies are incredibly popular. Um, comics themselves are still struggling a little, and, and that's sad uh, mm. because I love comics as a form. Um, which I don't, you know, some people call comics, you know, movies on paper. I, I don't agree with that. I think comics have very much their own grammar. Uh, they're a different, they're a different beast. And, and in fact, I've had friends that were movie writers or TV writers who tried to do comics and, and had trouble adjusting. So, um, I, I, they just are their own unique, um, art form. And, um, I hope, I hope that we're able to keep presenting that because um i love comics i'm surrounded by a pile of them as we speak <laughs> yeah and you continue to write for for comics uh, i haven't for a little while my last comics i was doing uh some work on that when i was on falling skies i mm-hmm. did some falling skies comics that tied into the series yeah my last book i really did that were outside of tv were superman and superman batman that i did for dc mm. uh, which were which were fun um uh, but i've sort of gravitated away from that now it, it's TV is a very full-time job, and yeah. I've been dedicated to that more these days. Yeah. Well, let's let's wind back a little bit because, um, as much as they are separate uh, mediums, um, that your first work in in features, Mask and, and Time Cop, and actually led to uh, to a series, were adaptations of comics, weren't they? Uh, they were. Uh, Time Cop was a comic I co-created with Mike Richardson, who's the publisher of Dark Horse. And that we set up with uh, Sam Raimi back when, in sort of his Dark Man days, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it was a long, a long process to get that going. And it was more or less uh, the American comic book I created was the first script I actually sold. Oh yeah, in Hollywood, I sold that. Yeah, I uh, set that up at Warner Brothers. In fact, just to tell you a quick story of how I sort of broke into studio screenwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, I had written the Predator comic book series. Um, for Dark Horse. Yeah. And the first issue of that had come out, and I got a call on a Sunday from Joel Silver. No. Who said, um, basically, kid, I want you to come in tomorrow and tell me how that series ends, because we'd like to use it for Predator 2. Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> so I went in to see Joel Silver uh, the next day, and uh, by the way, I didn't have an agent or anything. I was, uh-huh. I was just a uh, kid, kid writing comic books. And I told them how Predator 2 ended. Um, Jim and John Thomas, who created Predator, were there. And um, we discussed sort of the thoughts that I had for my book. I felt kind of strange because here's the creators of the book, uh, creators of the pro- uh, entire property, and I'm telling them what I'm doing with it. Wow. Interesting. But when I got done uh, talking about Predator, uh, Michael Levy, who was uh, Joel Silver's second-in-command back then, said, have you got anything else? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I created this book called The American, and it, it might be something you guys would like. And, you know, fast forward about six months, they did. They they bought it, and they hired me to write the screenplay. Wow. Uh, options book and hired me to write the screenplay. And that was my first studio um, writing assignment. So uh, the comics and movies have all sort of dovetailed into one another. Wow. Very, very cool. And uh, And so... Um, from from time, time Cop going into a series, um, how did that lead to um, your other TV work? Like, did you know at that point that you you wanted to do TV full time, or were you just kind of discovering that? Uh, well, 
it, you know, it was interesting. I had a pretty good run of feature work. Um, I am the classic, you know, feature writer in Hollywood in that I've had maybe three or four produced in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually sold about 25 features wow. over, over the years. Um, and in fact, I'm writing one right now. Uh, so, so I've had, I had a, a, a good feature career. What happened with Time Cop was, um, and this makes people very sad or, or envious or something when they hear this story, mm-hmm. but this is how it happened. I'd written the Time Cop movie that was produced by uh, Largo. It was their last movie, and the executive producer was Larry Gordon, who's an old-school producer. He's been mm-hmm. part of Bill Silver. He actually produced Predator, too. Um, and uh, I got a call one day saying um, Universal is ready to do a Time Cop series. Uh, we have 13 on the air. Would you like to write the pilot? I had never done television. Wow. Um, but uh, I said, because I'm not stupid, yes. <laughs> and that was my very first um, TV experience was to jump in with both feet into a full-blown series that's 13 on the air. Uh, you're rocking and you're rolling. Wow. And um, that was a real uh, learning experience. Um the uh I was working with Bob Singer, who is the executive producer, who's been on Supernatural now for a long time, had done Lois and Clark right before we did Time Cop. Mm-hmm. Um and um so it was a very it, it was a learning experience. I would say it was a very um oh, how do I put this? It was a uh difficult experience just trying to learn, you know, a lot of stuff that you know you you pick up as you go in this business, and most mm-hmm. of the time you would start like a writer, staff writer, executive, story editor, something like that, and work your way up. But I sort of started in the high middle <laughs> and learned a lot. But that's that's essentially how I broke into TV. And I think what I liked about TV, though, right off the bat, was as opposed to the 25 features I've written over the years, of which four have been made, and um, the lengthy development. Uh, process, which has gotten more lengthy recently, but mm. that was involved in every one of those. Um, TV, you write it, and sometimes what you've written is on the stage the next day, and if you're doing a network show, it's on the air two months later, yeah. four months or whatever. That's exciting. And and the other part that was very attractive was, unlike features like Time Cop or The Mask, where um, which, by the way, were great fun to work on, but... Mm. As a writer, I was not on set. I was not involved in any of the um, post activities whatsoever. Uh, you know, in television, the producer writer is uh, has more control. And uh, just from the point of view of trying to, you know, have a few of your words actually appear on screen, that part was more fun uh, once the TV thing opened up. So I, I sort of gravitated to TV after doing the Time Cop series, um, continued to write some features, um, and then, um, but, you know, TV just kept sort of knocking on the door and I kept answering. Very cool. Well, speaking about knocking hey. on the door, um, Smallville, how, at what point did you get onto Smallville? Oh, uh, I was there season one. So the guys who wrote the pilot, uh, I had worked with them, Al Goff and Miles Miller. I'd worked with them on a, uh, show called The Strip, which mm-hmm. was on UPN a year or so earlier. Um, they knew I knew comics, and um, and so uh, I, w- I was brought in very you know early as after the pilot had been done to come onto that show, and I was on Smallville for the first three years 
supervising producer, then co-executive producer, and wrote, I don't know, 11 or 12 episodes. Very, very cool. And, and now, you had written Superman as a character for Action Comics. Um, so what, what was it like to reboot the character uh, for the screen in this way? And especially right after Lois and Clark. Lois and Clark had been just a few years before, and now here it was being rebooted yet again. Yeah, I, I, well, it was, it was fun. Um, I had done a Superman story, uh, geez, years before, which was super cool to have a story in action comics. If hmm. you're a comic fan, that's like, you know, wow. I yeah. A story in a little superhero book. That's great. Um, with Smallville, I just thought the pilot did so many things right. Hmm. Um, the, the decisions that were made and, and, um, and to me, especially the treatment of the Lex Luthor character, uh, played by Michael Rosenbaum was, uh, just spectacular. Mm. Um, the idea of him being this tragic, will he turn to the dark side figure, uh, was, um, I think a, um, really sort of a masterstroke that they came up with. And, um, and then the idea that, that Clark is, is growing up and, and not in the suit, um, not flying for a while, uh, you know, the fact that it's essentially the story of a superhero maturing and trying to find his way while he has a friend who's being tempted to the dark side. There's just very archetypical, fun, mythological elements to play with. And, and then it's Superman. Hmm. Of course, it's incredibly cool. Yeah. So, um, it, it was, um, I, again, Smallville was like all shows, by the way, a challenge at times to, because for all the, things that TV, all the other things that TV has, like, you know, budgets, issues, and uh, et cetera. Uh, it was a challenge to sort of bring the, I think, the special effects world that we really wanted sometimes to that show. But um, I'm very proud of the three years I was there. I think um, I think the show looked great, and uh, I'm very proud of uh, a lot of the work we did there. Absolutely, absolutely. I, kept, I didn't keep up with it after I left, mm -hmm. but I heard it, you know, kept up the quality, and, and I have a lot of friends that we on it right to the end, and I'm, I'm, you know, again proud to be part of that world. Absolutely, and uh, and so then came Battlestar Galactica, and I, I think that show is of particular interest because, um, as much as Smallville was about a character who started in the comics, Battlestar Galactica really, to me, feels like a graphic novel. Uh, I suppose, yeah, a darker graphic novel, uh, mm -hmm. more V for Vendetta than Superman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, from that world, uh, you know, Battlestar was was a fantastic experience. Uh, working with Ron Moore and David Icke and all the other writers that were involved, uh, it just was a singularly great uh, experience. Um, I, I, the way I came onto the show, I, I started on the show in season two. Mm -hmm. um, kind of another one of these, you know, this is how it sort of works with stories, but. Um, I had no idea Battlestar Galactica was back on the air. The whole first season had run. And I got a call uh, one day that David Icke, who was on the show, wondered if I would be interested in coming in and talking about joining the show. Um, I had worked with David when he was working with Sam Raimi years earlier, mm -hmm. and I had done some work on a Darkman sequel that we did way back when. So I guess part of this story is that you never know where, what the work you did one place may turn up and help you in another place. Mm. Um, but David remembered me from that, which was very kind. And um, 
but I was like, that'll start Galactica. I had the classic response that a lot of people had when even you talked about bringing the show back. I was, I was like, isn't that that goofy show from the seventies? <laughs> yeah. Isn't that great? And so then I watched it. Um, I, and I was able to watch all 12 or 13 episodes plus the miniseries and of course was totally blown away. Yeah. And called him up as soon as I could the next week and said, whatever I can do, I want to be involved in this. This is yeah. an amazing show. And, um, so I came on board in season two and ended up as co-executive producer in season, well, actually in season two, I, I was promoted and I ran the writer's room there in season three and season four, obviously with enormous input from Ron and David. And, um, and that was my role on that. And, uh, I'm very proud of that show. Absolutely. And, and it also feels a little bit more like a cable show. And the fact that it went to, went to some really dark places. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, was this something that you, was this freeing for you a little bit after, um, I mean, Smallville was awesome, but it was, it was much more networky if I, if I want to put it that way. Like it was much lighter anyway. It was lighter. Yeah. I mean, I think what, there were a couple of things that surprised me. I, again, calling, coming from Smallville, it was interesting to come on to Battlestar and do, for instance, an episode about abortion, hmm. which on um, network or, or CW or whatever channel would have been very controversial to say the least. It would have, you know, there would be a lot of, a lot of discussion about that. Hmm. I remember we did an episode where uh, President Roslin was mulling over abortion. I think he was going to make it illegal because they just needed more kids, hmm. um, which was an interesting sort of look at it. And um, I don't remember anybody saying anything about that part of the story uh, from <laughs> the network, yeah. sci-fi. Um, it was just sort of, and, and I think what we had with Battlestar that worked in our favor and allowed us to go places I don't think we could have gone on some other shows was the distance that these are not us. These people were not, you know, um, 2013 Americans. Hmm. Um, so when they talk about their religion and they talk about uh, Cylons, and there's a remove there that means, okay, when we talk about abortion, we're not talking about that within our political context. We're talking about it within their political context. And I think that distance made it more palatable and, and easier to swallow for uh, the network. Um, obviously, we did some stuff that's, you know, pretty, um, was really fun to work on. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I especially remember the season three opener where um, all the, uh, many of our characters have been captured by the Cylons and um, it's a resistance and an occupation and our characters are becoming suicide bombers to blow up the Cylons and um, we, we, these were all tropes that we knew uh, were very interesting and scary places to go with our characters. And I got to give Sci-Fi Channel credit. Um, no one ever said, okay, guys, you're not going to turn Colonel Ty into a suicide bomber um, or have him talk about it or instigate that. Mm. Or you're not going to cut his eye out, which we also did. Yeah. Um, they were very supportive. Um, and um, so I think, you know, it, for whatever reason, Battlestar seems to have been a this. It came at a great moment in time. I think the the climate, and this is a sort of a thing that you can't predict or understand one way or another. The climate was ready for that show. The mm. world was kind of ready to see that show with that political, that level of political discussion, and um, and so uh, 
and and I think the right people came together in terms of Vaughn and David and, and an amazing writing staff and, and an incredible cast to really produce a show that we were all incredibly proud of. I've, I mean, the, the, we still get together people from Battlestar, you know, you're, you know, I don't know how long it's been now, like four or five years and just kind of go, wow, that was amazing. Well, um, and, and that's, and that's not just television at its best, but s- the the potential of sci-fi. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking of back to Gene Roddenberry's first Star Trek series and how they they explored these political issues in a way that was because of that remove that they were able to do. Uh, I mean, the first interracial kiss and 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 things that were just huge for television, but because it was sci-fi, they were able to go there. Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. I mean, science fiction just in a broader way, not just involving Battlestar, but in a broader sense, you're just able to go places that um, you can't if you're stuck, sort of earthbound. Um, and that doesn't mean shows science fiction always has to be in outer space, but it, um, I've always said what's really fun about working in uh, the science fiction world, whether that's Smallville or Falling Skies or Hero, any of these heroes, Battlestar, is that the level of an invention that you can bring to the show is just greater. Um, look, I love Law and Order. Hmm. I love all three Law and Order shows. I watch them. I devour them. You know, <laughs> um, and uh, I enjoy the craft of those. But I don't know that I would be as good writing those because you know, in, in Law and Order, if a guy pulls a gun and pulls the trigger and a bullet goes out, certain things have to happen. But when you're working in science fiction you can imagine a lot of things could happen. And that's really the joy of working in, in science fiction for me is being able to kind of go outside the box and what what else could happen in mm. this situation? What what other thing could go on here that um, intrigues me or might intrigue an audience, uh, is, feels different and fun? That's that's what I love about working in uh, science fiction yeah. and horror, which is Hemlock Grove. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I don't want to give short shrift to Heroes and Falling Skies because I absolutely love those shows. Sure. But uh, we do have to move on to Hemlock Grove. Um, okay. For, uh, how, when did you first hear about the project? Did you hear about the book first, or or um, or was it the the actual uh, television project? Uh, it was the television project. Um, the book wasn't out yet, actually, when I heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, basically, I had been working on Falling Skies and um, got a call from my agents that uh, uh, Netflix and, and Gaumont, the studio, was looking for someone to come on board and uh, be involved in, in a show called Hemlock Grove, which I hadn't heard of. They sent me the galleys of Brian McGreevy's book, which mm-hmm. I read, and I kind of went, wow. Um, this is just really different. Um, this is taking sort of, uh, for those who have seen the show or, or haven't, uh, Hemlock Grove is uh, sort of a combination of thriller and horror story and um, with supernatural elements, but also with incredible emotional stories about two boys who are very different, who can't make friends and who find friendship with each other and through reasons not of their own but friendship gets pulled apart and all the while there's murders happening um it's an easy thing to say that it it had 
um, similarities to Twilight, but it's so much the anti-Twilight that mm. it, it really appealed to me in, in that sense. Um, and then the other thing that appealed to me um, was the idea of doing it for Netflix. This was uh, Netflix's second original show after uh, House of Cards. And uh, for me, the idea to get involved with a company that's at the cutting edge of a new way of distributing television um, I don't even know if you call it television anymore. Cause mm-hmm. A lot of people don't watch it on television. Yeah. Um, is it just struck me as something that would be very fun to to uh, get involved with. So, uh, long story short, I got a call, discussed it with Gomont and with the Netflix people, and I was brought on as an executive producer, um, and uh, went to work with uh, Brian McGreevy and his partner Lee Shipman, uh, I think in February of 2012. To start uh, breaking the, the stories and scripts for the series. Very very cool. And one of the one of the things I I was immediately struck with with Hemlock Grove. Uh, it, it's funny. Just yesterday I was I was in the bookstore and I saw about a two inch thick book about all of the the legends and mythology re- related to vampires. And I was I was flipping through the pages of the book, and and there were so many things in there that I've never seen on television, I've never seen in the movies. And it just occurred to me that there are certain tropes that, for whatever reason, all of the vampire stories have have been following and all of the werewolf stories have been following. There's a certain way that a, a werewolf is it, it manifests and in a certain way that he changes into being a werewolf that have just been the same. For years and years and years, and here Hemlock Grove is doing things so differently. Um, can you talk about that part of the story? Well, I think that's part of Brian's, part of the greatness of Brian's book, which was he is taking those fundamental mythological stories of vampirism and werewolves, Frankenstein's monster, and putting his spin on it. Um, we did not. Uh, the book certainly does not feel uh, indebted whatsoever to. Uh, you know, it's funny to back up a little bit. A lot of the uh, sort of myths that we think of when we think of vampires and werewolves actually come out of like the universal movies. Um, the, you know, you get conked with silver and that kills you as a werewolf. Mm. I, I believe that's from the movie. There's, yeah. there's a lot of stuff that, um, it's almost like the, the zombie shows, like you shoot them in the head and they're dead. Well, who made that rule? It's yeah. George Romero, I guess, made that rule in, 1968 with Night of the Living Dead, but how did that become like <laughs> some sort of law that that's the only way you can kill zombies? And yet, over and over again, now we just accept that. Well, you know, you got a zombie, you got to shoot him in the head. Yeah. Um, the one thing that Brian did in the book and that we we did on the series is we did not pay any attention really to sort of the the tropes that everybody feels you need to have when or, or feels feel like you know common when you're doing a show that involves a new peer which is our word for vampire or a werewolf um so in our show the there you know our our peers can move in daylight they don't sleep in coffins um i don't know if anyone ever held a crucifix up to them but i don't think it would matter much um they are a different sort of creature but they still have the same uh bloodlust that that um comes from vampirism and so that part we did use and then on the werewolf side uh again just sort of a different mythology um some of it the same that the full moon creates uh, uh the werewolf but then the 
then there's changes to that. We, we meet another character who um, has a different uh, methodology uh, when it comes to becoming a werewolf and how that affects everyone as part of the, the story of the series. Very, very cool. And I, and I love that it's just fresh. Like you don't know where it's going to head. And, and I think so much of as much as everybody has this um, love of, of these stories, it, it limits you when you know where it's heading. And, uh, and the great thing about Hemlock Grove is, I mean, and obviously we don't want to spoil anything, but that, that end of episode 13, wow. <laughs> I mean, totally yeah, we, not what, um... totally not what I was expecting. Uh, the very end actually isn't in the book. Um, mm. We uh, one thing that uh, in working with Brian um, and with Lee, uh, his partner, when we started to to break the book down, because essentially the series is an adaptation. The first first season is an adaptation of the Hemlock Grove novel. Mm-hmm. And so when we we started to work on this, it, we looked at the book, sort of divvied it up into thirteen you know chapters that would make sense in the series. Mm-hmm. But um, also had to expand dramatically um, because unlike when you're adapting a novel to a movie and you have two and a half hours, this time we were adapting it and we had closer to 13 hours. And um, so we needed more um, more material. But that was great because what we were able to do is flesh out characters that uh, were interesting in the book and, and well realized, but we could, we could give them more. Uh, the specifics are... Um, the character of Chosur, who's played by Candace McClure, Battlestar mm. veteran, um, who in the book is um, sort of a detective-ish character with, with a strange background. You don't learn too much about her background or how she became part of all this. Um, in the series, we explore much, much deeper um, her background and where, where she came from and uh, sort of what's, what's tormenting her about uh, the case. Um, and that's true with uh, some of the other characters as well. Olivia, played by Famke Jansen, and, and her uh, on and off romance with uh, Norman, uh, was played by Dugray Scott. Uh, those those stories were expanded so we could understand sort of where that passion had started and where it's taken them as we get toward the end of the show. Um, that part was so. The, the great part was taking the novel, but being able to uh, open it up even further as opposed to constrict it, which often happens when you're adapting. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I just love the, and I, I think part of it is, is the, uh, the cable aspect of it, slash Netflix, where you just have the time to let it breathe. And it, mm-hmm. it feels like you can paint the characters so much more, as so much richer. Um, and with so many more layers than you might in in a, in a more traditional TV format. Well, you really have the the room and latitude, exactly what you said, to let let characters breathe and to 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 let scenes play out, um, so that you 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 can kind of settle into them. I mean, I think there's a different, for lack of a better word, a different feel to Hemlock Grove than than some shows. Um, it's it's um we, we had the ability to linger mm-hmm. when when you work on uh um network shows you have a very specific timeline you're you're trying to hit you know 42 minutes right now usually with all the commercials and what i found when i worked in network and by the way i love network i love cable mm-hmm. so it's not putting them down netflix is great but i love all the other forums too um but what i often found was uh, to to 
to get your show down to the time, often you you know you shoot a few minutes over. To get it down to time, what you'd end up losing are those moments that aren't necessarily plot driven, hmm. but but give more color to the characters. Yeah. Um, those are always the first things to go, sadly, when you're just trying to whittle it down and fit this arbitrary um, time limit. Well, with Netflix, there was no arbitrary time limit, so um, we could we could let those scenes play. We didn't have to take them out to 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 fit some um, you know scheduling parameter. Um, just on a, on another level, I had never worked on a show, and obviously at HBO and Showtime, their shows are like this, but I've never done a show there. But I'd never worked on a show without act breaks mm. and without, you know, uh, cliffhangers at six different points <laughs> or five, four. <laughs> yeah. Changed over the years. Um, and you'd be amazed how fast you get used to not doing that. Yeah. Um, it, it's much more like writing a feature where you're not constantly going like, okay, what's, what's the act break? What's the act break? What's the act break? That's really a lot of what you're looking at when you're breaking stories. Um, for more traditional commercial television. And, um, you know, that's an art unto itself. But for, for Hemlock, it was great to not have to spend so much time focused on, you know, oh God, we need, what's, what's our three minute out teaser thing <laughs> type questions? Um, we were able to just focus on, okay, what's, what's the story you want to tell on this episode? Very cool. And, and now the tone, um, is is very uh, a very delicate balance to maintain. It's, it's it's a very different tone than say something like a True Blood. Um, it's very much its own world. But uh, can you talk a little bit about maintaining that tone through the different characters, through the different, I mean, through the family dynamics, and keeping it um, that that creepy horror, but not over the top, and just it, with the mystery in there. Well, uh, you know, because um, Eli Roth, who is an executive producer on the show and who directed the pilot, uh, because of his involvement, um, his great involvement, um, I think sometimes the show is has been categorized too easily as a horror show. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there are horrific aspects to the show, but we were really um, looking at this as a as a tonal piece more of more out of the world of um frankly a twin peaks mm-hmm. uh, now twin peaks is just so i'm clear that's the rembrandt <laughs> and it, i love twin peaks so uh, i'm not trying to make comparisons i'm just saying that that when we're looking at archetypes of other shows and like what is the sort of feel we're going for twin peaks and then and then for me i thought a little bit of dark shadows mm. with the show uh, not necessarily the movies but the uh, original soap, which had, uh, a, especially early on, a very creepy, foreboding atmosphere that just lingered over all these family moments. And, you know, the werewolves and vampires in that show were minimal. Um, they didn't do a whole lot because it was difficult, I think, physically in production to do them. But the, the sense of dread and the sense of sort of oppressive, um, just an oppressive sense of what was going on. That that was very much of Dark Shadows. I I wrote a pilot for a Dark Shadows pilot um, for a Dark Shadows series in like 2004 that didn't get off the ground. 
but I certainly had sort of that in my head since I I studied dark shadows extensively when I worked on that project. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know it was really about not so much looking every show for the giant horror moments, although we have those, but it was that that sense of unsettledness. Mm-hmm. You know, you just don't quite understand or know what the characters are doing next, or you know, what did that look mean? What why, sort of like why are they burying that box? I don't understand. Those sorts of questions, then mm. punctuated with, "Oh my God, she's attacking this! <laughs> They're killing a werewolf!" Yeah, you know, or that kid's transforming. Holy smokes! Yeah, well, in and I love at the same time how it's grounded in this relationship between Peter and Roman, and it's funny because it ties a little bit um, that. Will he go to the dark side that you were talking about with Lex Luthor and Smallville? You you get that with Roman. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Roman character is is a classic tragic figure in that he has everything and he has nothing. Um, he has uh, family wealth. He has the looks. He has um, uh, he basically has all the physical sort of attributes you need to be a success, but he has no friends. He, he knows he's different. He doesn't understand why. He does things just like a lot of people do that are contrary to making friends. I mean, he's his own worst enemy in some respects. Um, and uh, one thing that we, we really wanted to do with, I think, Roman, which is in the book, is is keep you off balance as to what he actually is thinking or trying to to do. He he um, He's very complex. And yet he's actually kind of simple, too, because he's a teenager trying to figure out his place in the world. He has all these pressures on him, but they're pressures that are different than we have because he has such a controlling mother who, in fact, is um, has an ulterior motive in mind through everything that happens through the first season uh, that takes him to a very uh, different and, and dark place. Mm. Um, but at the core of him... And this is what we always came back to, I think, with all our characters was, all right, that's he has a supernatural aspect to him, but what is the human aspect of him? What is the human emotional story of Roman Godfrey in this world? His desire to find a friend, his seeming inability to not do things that push those friends away. I mean, what is this driving him? And, and that's what we spent a lot of time thinking about. And, and obviously, Brian spent a lot of time when he wrote the book thinking about. And we tried to convey in the series. Very, very cool. And uh, I, I have to say, beautifully shot. Uh, I mean, just beautiful. Uh, the locations, the sets. Um, I do have to give a shout out. Uh, uh, Dean O'Dell, the art director, is a very good, dear friend of mine. Um, oh. And did an amazing, amazing job uh, together with the whole team. They were- yeah, they were fantastic. We had an amazing director of photography, uh, Fernando Aguilas, who um, very early on, um, our production designer was a man named Drew Bouton. Mm. He worked with Dean, your friend. And Dean's fantastic, too. And when Drew came in to talk to us about production design for the show, um, we were all kind of, well, we know we want dark and creepy uh, and and unsettling. He brought in some reference of this of a photographer named Gregory Crewson who does these astonishingly unsettling photo stories. They're photographs, but they tell a story. Mm. Um, 
that incredibly well designed. He, he'll spend up to a week designing all this stuff for one photograph. When we saw that, we went, that's, that's the look we want. Of course, saying that and getting it are two different things. Yeah. And Drew, along with Fernando and uh, our directors, uh, embraced that and were able to capture that Crutzen, uh feel, I think, in an amazing way. I, I am, I, I'm glad you responded to the look of the show because I think, um, we were incredibly proud of, of how well that was realized mm. and, um, uh, both from a design aspect and from a photography aspect, uh, uh, I'm really proud of that. Very, very cool. Well, we are coming close to the end of our time here. Um, the, one of the last things I wanted to mention, uh, you, you are on Twitter at Mark Verheiden. Um, how important is it to you to interface with fans and has, has social media changed or informed your writing? Um, well, as I said, when we started, I, I came to this as a fan. So I sort of, I, I think I can see it from both sides. I can, I can remember what it was like to, you know, read something or see a show and, and my thoughts about it and like, why are they doing that? Or, or boy, I love that. And, and now from the other side, kind of going like, well, I know why we did that. And, <laughs> uh, and, and sort of seeing it from the, the opposite perspective. I think, look, I think the fans are amazing. Um, I've been to San Diego Con. I go every year. I've gone for 30 years. Um, mm. I go whether I have something to, to promote or not. Um, I love the excitement and I love the passion that you see when you walk down the aisles. You see all these, not just kids, but adults, anybody who's just excited about uh, the world that excite me. And so, um, it'd be, I, I love fans and love to meet them. And on Twitter, I love to talk to them. I'm very open about that sort of stuff. I think that when you ask the question, can you let, um, fan reaction impact what you're doing? Um, I think, you know, you listen to the general sort of, I don't know, gestalt of things, just the, the over, you know, the, the general feel you're getting, I guess, from the world. But, I, I ultimately, specific, in a specific sense, I, I really come to say I have to please myself. Mm. I have to be doing the best I can first. Um, if that pleases the studio and the network, I keep working, which is great. And <laughs> that's great, too. But it, I, I have to kind of approach it from the, you know, I, I have to do what I think is right. And, and also understanding that sometimes what fans think they want may not necessarily be the right thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I remember um, an example might be Lois and Clark, or uh, I could get this wrong, but I believe Lois and Clark finally got together mm -hmm. in the last, because fans really were asking for that, and I'm not sure that was right for the show. Mm. Uh, changed the dynamic so dramatically that um, this, I think the show went off the air in the fourth season. Um it doesn't mean that those were bad ideas. It just means that sometimes what you're yearning for, you're watching a show. Why can't those two characters get together? Please put those two characters together. Well, what you're actually responding to is you're really liking the reason they're not together. Hmm. And to sort of appease that by bringing them together might not be the right thing to do. So um, that's a long answer to say, you know, you take in everything. Um, but I can't say I specifically go, oh. They didn't like that. I'm never doing that again. Mm. Uh, because, or 
yes, I like that. I'm going to keep doing that. Every project's its own thing. And, and so every time I approach something, it's really from what is it that intrigues me right now? That's why they're paying me. In theory, I bring what <laughs> nonsense I have in my head. And what intrigues me about this and how can I best realize that? And I hope that, um, you know, a lot of people will feel the same way. Very cool. Well, we are at the end of our time here. Uh, Mark, I want to thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time. And uh, boy, Great. generous with uh, you have a large body of work that I enjoy. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thanks. Cool. Okay. Thanks so much, Mark. Okay. okay. Talk to you okay. soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web.